Chapter Thirty of My Brilliant Career. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted Nugent. My Brilliant Career by Miles Franklin. Chapter Thirty. Where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. When by myself I fretted so constantly that the traces it left upon me became evident even to the dull comprehension of Mrs. Amsward. I don't hold with too much pleasure and dissipation, but you ain't had over much of it lately. You've stuck at home pretty constant, and ye and Lisa can have a little fly round. It will do you good, she said. The dissipation, pleasure, and flying round allotted to Lisa and me were to visit some of the neighbors. Those, like the Amswats, were sheep farming selectors. They were very friendly and kind to me, and I found them superior to my employers, in that their houses were beautifully clean. But they lived the same slow life, and their sole existence fed on the same small ideas. I was keenly disappointed that none of them had a piano, as my hunger for music could be understood only by one with a passion for that art. I borrowed something to read, but all that I could get in the way of books were a few young ladies' journals, which I devoured ravenously, so to speak. When Lisa's back would be turned, the girls would ask me how I managed to live at Barney's Gap, and express themselves of the opinion that it was the most horrible halt in the world, and Mrs. Amsward the dirtiest creature living, and that they would not go there for fifty pounds the week. I made a point of never saying anything against Mrs. Amsward, but I fumed inwardly that this life was forced upon me when girls with no longings or aspirations beyond being the wife of a Peter Emsworth recoiled from the thought of it. My mother insisted upon my writing to her regularly, so once a week I headed a letter, Black's Camp, and condemned the place. My mother as unfailingly replied that these bedtimes I should be thankful to God that I was fed and clothed. I knew this as well as any one, and was aware there were plenty of girls willing to jump at my place, but they were of different temperament to me, and when one is seventeen, that kind of reasoning does not weigh very heavily. My eldest brother, Horace, twin brother of my sister Gertie, took it upon himself to honor me with the following letter. Why the deuce don't you give up writing those letters to mother? We got tongue-pie on account of them, and it's not as if they did you any good. It only make mother more determined to leave you where you are. She says, you're that conceited you think you ought to have something better, and you're not fit for the place you have, and she glad it is such a place, and it will do you the world of good, and take the nonsense out of you, that this time you got a bit of sense, Sullivan's ginger. 
After she gets your letters, she does jaw and wishes she never had a child, and what a good mother she is, and what bad devils we are to her. You are a fool not to stay where you are. I wish I could get away to Amsworth or Markport, and I would jump at the chance like a good un. The boss still sprees and loves about town, till someone has to go and haul him home. I'm about full of him, and I'm going to leave home before next Christmas, or my name ain't what it is. Mother says the kiddies will starve if I leave, but Stanley is coming on like a haystack. I tell him, and he does kick up, and he ought to be able to plow next time. I plowed when I was younger than him. I put in fourteen acres of wheat and oats this year, and I don't think I'll cut the wheelbarrow load of it. I'm full of the place. I never have a single penny to my name. And it ain't father's drinking that's all to blame. If he doesn't booze, it wouldn't he much better. It's the slowest hole in the world, and I won't chuck it and go shearing or droving. I hate this dairying. It's too slow for a funeral. They would hear more life in trapping possums out on Timlin Billy. Mother always says to have patience, and when the drought breaks and good seasons come round again, things will be better. But it's no good of trying to stuff me like that. I remember when the seasons were wet. It was no good growing anything, because everyone grew so much that there were no market, and the sheep died of food rot, and you couldn't give your butter away, and it is not much worse to have nothing to sell than not be able to sell a thing when you have it. And the long and short of it is that I hate daring like blue murder. It's a tame as the clucking hen. Fancy a cough sitting down every morning and evening, pulling other cow's tits, fit to bust himself, and then turning an old separator, and washing it up in a dish of water, like a blooming girl's walk. And if you go to your picnic, just when the fun commences, you have to nick off home and milk. And when you talk yourself on Sunday evening, you have to undress again and lay into the milking, and then you have to change everything on you and have a bath, or your best girl would send the cow yard on you and not have you within cooey of her. We won't know what rain is when we see it, but I suppose it will come in floods and finish the little left by the drought. The grasshoppers have eaten all the fruit, and even the bark of the trees, and the caterpillars made a croaker of the few tomatoes we kept alive with the suds. All the cockies round here, and dead, are applying to the government to have their rent suspended for a time. We have not heard yet whether it will be granted, but if Goff doesn't like it, they will have to lump it, for none of us have a penny to bless ourselves with let alone dub up for taxes. I've written you a long letter, and if you growl about the spelling and grammar, I won't write to you any more. So there, and you take my tip, and don't write to mother on that flute any more, for she won't take a bit of notice. Your loving brother, Horace.
So mother had no pity for me, and the more I pleaded with her, the more determined she grew upon leaving me to suffer on. So I wrote to her no more. However, I continued to correspond with Granny, and in one of her letters she told me that Harry Beckham, that was in February, was still in Sydney settling his affairs. But when that was concluded, he was going to Queensland. He had put his case in the hands of squatters he had known in his palmy days, and the first thing that turned up in managing or overseeing he was to have. But for the present, he had been offered the charge of 1,600 head of bullocks from a station up near the Gulf of Carpentaria, overland to Victoria. Uncle J.J. was not home yet. He had extended his tour to Hong Kong, and Granny was afraid he was spending too much money. As in the face of the drought, she had difficulty in making both ends meet, and feared she would be compelled to go on the banks. She grieved that I was not becoming more reconciled to my place. It was dull, no doubt, but it would do my reputation no harm, whereas were I in a lively situation, there might be numerous temptations hard to resist. Why did I not try to look at it in that way? She sent a copy of the Australasian, which was a great treat to me, also to the children, as they were quite ignorant of the commonest things in life. And the advent of this illustrated paper was an event to be recorded in the diary in capital letters. They clustered round me eagerly to see the pictures. In this edition, there chanced to be a page devoted to the portraits of eleven Australian singers, and our eyes fell on Madame Melbourne, who was in the middle. As what character she was dressed, I do not remember, but she looked magnificent. There was a crown upon her beautiful head, the plentiful hair was one flowing, and the shapely bosom and arm exposed. Who's that? they inquired. Madame Melbourne. Did you ever hear her name? Who's Madame Melbourne? What's she do? Is she a queen? Yes, a queen, and a great queen of song and being inspired with great admiration for our own Australian cantatrice, who was great among the greatest prima donnas of the world, I began to tell them a little of her fame, and that she had been recently offered £40,000 to sing for three months in America. They were incredulous. £40,000! ten times as much as Pa had given for a pet of selection he had lately bought. They told me it was no use of trying to tell them fibs. No one would give a woman anything to sign, not even one pound. Why, Susie Duffy was the best singer on the Murrumbidgee, and she would sing for anyone who asked her, and free of charge. At this juncture, Jimmy, who had been absent, came to see the show. After grazing for a few seconds, he remarked what the others had failed to observe. Why, the woman's naked! I attempted to explain, 
that among rich people in high society it was customary to dress like that in the evening, and that it looked very pretty. Mrs. Emsworth admonished me for showing the children low pictures. She must be a very bold woman, said Jimmy, and Lisa pronounced her mad, because, as she put it, it's a wonder she behaved and dressed in her photo. You think she ought to dress herself up complete then? Lisa certainly acted upon this principle, as the photo of her, which had been taken by a travelling artist, bore evidence that for the occasion she had arrayed herself in two pairs of ill-fitting cuffs, Peter's watch and chain, strings, jackets, flowers, and others cuckoo's galore. There ain't no such person as Madame Melbourne. It's only a fairy tale, said Mrs. Emsworth. Did you ever hear of Gladstone? I inquired. Nay, where's that place? Did you ever hear of Jesus Christ? Sure, yes. He got something to do with God, ain't he? After that, I never attempted to enlighten them regarding our celebrities. Oh, how I envied them their ignorant contentment. They were as ducks on a duck pond, but I was a duck, forced forever to live in a desert, ever wildly longing for water, but never reaching it outside of dreams. End of chapter 30